6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapters 3 through 4, verses 1 through 12. For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, Paul speaking, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you and our labor be in vain. There's lots of repetition here, and that just shows you that Paul was so stirred as he wrote. He's speaking from his heart. He's not wordsmithing this thing. There's a time break. Timothy's returned. Paul had moved to Corinth, worked at his trade, and he preached at the synagogue. So there's some at least weeks, maybe more, that from the time that Paul was there that he's writing this letter. This is all in Acts 18. But we have this term tempter. Lest by some means the tempter have tempted you in our labor be in vain. Is Satan moving around here? How many believe he's a real person? Okay, good for you. Satan. He's referred to in every major section of the New Testament. He is supreme in the realm of evil spirits, obviously. He's always opposed to God and man's best interest. Opposed to God, that's obvious. He's opposed to your best interest in any case. He's the source of affliction from 2 Corinthians 12. He takes away the good seed from the hearts of men in Mark 4 and Matthew 13. He sows evil seed in the world in Matthew 13. The tares and the wheat and all of that. He's a God of this world. That's a title that he has. He blinds the minds of the unbelieving according to 2 Corinthians 4. He tempted the Lord himself. Why would he overlook you? And he tempted the Lord and his followers. Are you a follower of Jesus? Then you're on Satan's list. Now the good news is he's not ubiquitous. He can't be everywhere at one time, but he does have a lot of lieutenants. He hindered Paul's missionary work. That's the illusion Paul makes here. The tempter hindered. Maybe he hindered you. See, that's what one of the things he does. He hinders your why? Because he wants to keep the productivity down. Because every time someone trusts Christ, there's a counter that counts it up. And there's a point at which the counter is full, and the father will say to the son, go get him. He doesn't know when that is. But he's anxious for that, slow that counter down. He seeks to gain advantage over the faithful, we learn from 2 Corinthians 2. He is a deceptive angel of light. He's not ugly. He's always depicted in literature and artwork and so forth, some you know, ugly guy. No, if he was ugly, you'd be repulsed by him. No, he's beautiful. He at one time was the most beautiful thing created. And uh, he, had a, he, had a type, he was the angel of light, can you imagine? He is attractive. That makes him dangerous. Hey guys, you're not tempted by ugly girls, are you? It's the beautiful ones that are dangerous ones, in the sense I'm speaking, right? He's like a roaring lion, Peter tells us. He's chief among the enemies to be subjugated at the end. He's going to get his. And he's defeated already, according to Colossians 2. For many of us, that sounds awfully academic. Some people say we're in the millennium already. Well, if that's the case, his chain is too long, right? No, he's around. 
He cannot touch any child of God without permission. One of the instructive insights from the book of Job and also Luke 22 and other passages. Anything that happens to you is father-filtered. It may be grim, it may be unpleasant, it may be a lot of things, but you can take refuge in that it is by the Father's permission. That should give you comfort. Christians may defeat the, his purposes here and now. The possibility of victory is there. That's what Ephesians 6 is all about. You need to know about the armor of God. There's seven elements. All seven are critical. Put on the whole armor, not just your favorite pieces. There's seven of them. Find out what they are. Urgent, urgent study if you haven't done it before. Ephesians 6, from verse 10 to the end. Grab it. Appropriate it. See, you're in a warfare, whether you know it or not. It's the art of war. And it's more dangerous by carefully concealed surprises than by ostentatious displays of force. Yes, there'll be occasions when Satan will show ostentatious displays of force. But those aren't the dangerous ones. It's these little hidden surprises that are the deadly ones. He has persuaded, Satan has persuaded a frivolous and shallow generation that he no longer exists. But just a phantom of the past, a popular joke. Most non-believers have no grasp of the reality of Satan. He successfully, he, he creates two kinds of people. Those that don't believe he exists, they think he's just a figment of literature and a popular joke. Or the other extreme, people who are terrified of them. If you're a believer, you do not have to be terrified of him because you have the Holy Spirit. And he will try to bluff you. Now those occasions may be more rare than in this population, but who knows? There are confrontations with demons going on today. And one of their strategies is to bluff you, to terrify you. You need to know where you are in Christ. Hey, first of all, you better be in Christ. And if you are, don't let him bluff you. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. Let's move on. But now when Timotheus came from you unto us and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity and that ye have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us, as we also to see you. Very warm and friendly, isn't it? Therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith. In all our affliction. See, it's, it's a good report from them is a comfort to him. See, Paul is in affliction too, but getting a good report of what you're doing comforted him. That should be our attitude always. You see, when we know of another brother who's being faithful, that's a comfort to us. That's something for us to cling to as we have our challenges. We're family. We're family. So for the fourth time in this chapter, Paul has mentioned their faith. Very big comfort for him. Now verses 8, 9, and 10 are Paul's challenge from all of this. His whole heart was wrapped up in the spiritual prosperity of these, his children in the faith. He's very much wrapped up in their progress. So that's what he's dealing with here. Paul's prayer life. Study the Word and soul winning. That's, that summarized Paul. His prayer life, he studies the Word and winning souls. That's what he was all about. Get to verse 8. He says, for, for now we live if we stand fast in the Lord. And the if there is a conditional Greek, which means since. It's not if like a choice. It's just since. Now we're really living since you are standing fast, present tense. It's a little better translation. Now you're really living since you are standing fast in the faith. 
So standing fast is in Romans uh, 11 and a number of other places. Remember what Paul says in the Philippian letter? To me is to live as Christ. To, for me to live is Christ. That's what living is all about for Paul. For me to live is Christ. Right? What matters mo- most to each of us? That's a tough question. You might think about that. You might get yourself off in a private time of a devotion and think that through. What really matters most to you more than anything else? And does that belief really establish your priorities in your life? For most of us, it doesn't. The urgent usually preempts the important. We acknowledge A is more important than B, but we lean to B because it's more urgent. The urgent preempts the important. Be careful of that one. Now, verses 9 to 10 are a picture of Paul's great heart. And also, his love is contrasted with lust. And by the way, in, in, from verses 6 to 10, the Greek pronoun for you has used, been used 10 times. Paul's focus is them, not himself. But he continues, For what thanks can we render to God again for you? For all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God. Night and day praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. See, Paul is always fervent and continual in prayer. And we find this both here, here and in chapter 5, we're going to encounter this, and also in Ephesians 3.20, and then nowhere else in the New Testament. Praying that looks forward to the spiritual welfare of others is always appropriate. Praying that looks forward to the spiritual welfare of others is always appropriate. Somebody you love, pray for their spiritual welfare. Somebody in the family, pray for their spiritual welfare. That's always a primary concern of God's, and when you're praying about that, you're doing His will. That might perfect that which is on the word. Pef- it means to com- this is used in the term of being completed, to be completely equipped. He's not doubting his salvation because he speaks of knowing, brethren, your election back in chapter 1, you may recall. So he's not doubting that at all. Now, from verse 11 through 13 is Paul's prayer. And the last couple of verses, right in the middle of that, the first few couple of verses, the most dangerous thing in your spiritual experience is to rest on our oars. Visualize yourself paddling upstream. If you pause, you're going to drift backward. That's the, that's the flavor here of the rhetoric. Paul says that we may see your face. This petition to return was not granted until several years. He wanted to go there, but it wasn't until several years later he was allowed to. He had that passion to return and visit them face to face. See, Paul's labor in Thessalonica was very rudely interrupted. There was, he was run out of town. And he wanted to return to continue his teaching ministry. Now God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. See, God does rule in the affairs of men. And notice Paul always links the Father and the Son together. Now God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. God himself, our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. And it's most impressive when you see it this way where it's incidental to his argument. Full deity is ascribed to the Son is the key theological point here. And that view has been held from the earliest earliest date in the church. There's never been any doubt about the deity of Jesus Christ. That doubt is always raised by the anti-Christian cults. But that's, that's got deep roots, bears uh, ample study. Verse 12, And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. 
know, in this epistle, love is seen only in action. It's a labor of love. It's not love as an abstraction. It's a labor of love, if you may recall. It's not an affection, but it's an active seeking of the welfare of another. It's a very different definition of love than most of us would have recognized. It's not affection. That's a different thing. Several different kinds, in fact. But it's an active seeking of the welfare of another. That should be your attitude towards your mate, your spouse. It should be your attitude to every member of the family, the spiritual family. Your attitude towards a brother in Christ. May the Lord make you to increase and abound. The word kurios, that's familiar to readers of the Old Testament as the name of God. It's consistent with the road to Damascus experience where God, the Lord related him, you know, revealed himself to Paul. To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Every chapter in this, these epistles deals in some way with the Lord's coming. And to be unblameable in holiness. What does that mean to be? Equipped and complete. Unblameable in holiness before God. Hebrews 12 deals with that. When one follows, he has not yet attained perfection, but it will be attained when we see the Lord. And we'll come back to that in a minute. Second Peter speaks of the holy men of God, speaking of the Old Testament writers. They were holy, weren't they? The holy men of God. But they weren't perfect. You know, Moses was a murderer, right? David was a murderer and adulterer and a lot of other things. But see, they were holy and they weren't perfect in the sense of perfect, but they were set apart for God's holy use. That's really what, that's really what the term means. So really what he's arguing, don't be preoccupied with this present life. Unblameable before God is the issue. Nothing less than the very highest standard will do for the Christian. Conversion is only the beginning. You know, it's interesting, we tend to celebrate when someone accepts Jesus Christ. We treat that as a victory. And, and it is, but it's God's, it's God's victory. It's really a starting gun, not a finish line. Once you're saved, then your process of sanctification begins. Conversion is just the beginning. Our problem is not life after death. Our problem is life after birth. You're born again, great. Then what happened? Did you start bearing fruit? Or are you still fumbling that one? Most of us are fumbling it to some extent. Sanctification is a work in progress. We'll get to that here in a minute. The second coming, you know, there are three words that are used, both of the rapture and the second coming. They, these words apply to either one. Epiphania, that's epiphany, that's the appearing. Every eye shall see him. Well, that's in the second coming. Apocalypsis, that's the name of the book of Revelation. Apocalypsis. Revelation, that's the name of the last book of the Bible. His glory was veiled in the Gospels, except at the Transfiguration and at the Garden of Gethsemane, and, of course, in the last book of the Bible. That's why it's called the unveiling. And the parousia, the word actually means presence. Para is along, and usia is to be, to be present, to be alongside. To be alongside or to be present, in other words. Parousia. And that's also used of his coming. And it's, we should be in a growing experience of learning more of him. But all three of these words are used uh, to refer, in one way or another, the return of Christ. Now, what is today's lack? Well, one of the things we lack is we're not given to a real prayer life. I won't ask for a show of hands, but you can decide yourself if that fits you or not. Are we given over to the study of God's Word? Hopefully, the very fact you're here is evidence of that, at least in part. Given to soul winning. Are you given to soul winning? 
You don't do that with words, you do that with an example. Jesus called us to make disciples. You don't make disciples by preaching or handing out tracts. You make disciples by having a relationship with someone who is growing with you. Holiness is a Greek word in the Old Testament used only of God himself. But in the New Testament, it's found here and in 2 Corinthians 7. The believer belongs to God. He is set apart entirely for God's service. So in that sense, you're sanctified. There's some ways you're not complete yet, okay, but you're set apart for him. At thy coming, we find that expression. That means at any time. The concept of eminence is a very, very critical thing to be aware of. That we are instructed to expect God Jesus' return at any moment. It might interrupt the study. It might come next Tuesday. It might be quite distant. There's a lot of evidence that seems to indicate that it's not that far away, but okay. The main point is there's no event that has to precede. There's nothing left undone that has to be done before he can return to gather us. Important idea that we'll be dealing with in our next session. And this is not a new idea. Holy ones. What does that mean? Some people think they mean angels, or does it mean the believers? It's used of angels in the Septuagint in a number of places. It's also associated with the second coming in the New Testament. Uh, angels are never seen, uh, they never seem to be called simply holy ones, though, in the New Testament. So there's some scholastic debate as to exactly what they are, and we're not going to try to crack those distinctions here. Now, we've done chapter 3. I want to add to this 12 verses from chapter 4 to really to set the stage next time. So bear with me. 1 Thessalonians 4. There are three issues that are covered in this chapter. Private moral lives. That's a continuation of what we've been talking about. Everyday living in love toward one another. That's a continuation of what we talk about. And questions concerning the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's what we'll defer for next time to really get into that for a lot of obvious reasons. So let's just read 12 verses here. Furthermore, when we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. For ye know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. That every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles, which know not God, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any manner, because that the Lord is avenger of all such, as we also have forewarned you and testified. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. And he therefore that despiseth, despiseth not man, but God, who hath also given unto us his Holy Spirit. But as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And indeed ye do it toward all the brethren which are in all Macedonia. But we beseech you, brethren, that ye increase more and more, and that ye study to be quiet, and to do your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that ye may walk honestly toward them that are without, and that ye may have lack of nothing." Those are the 12 verses I want to include as if they were part of chapter 3 for our purposes here. The first of these verses was, Furthermore, then ye, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us, how ye ought to walk and please God, so we would abound more and more. That's the practical side of what we commonly call the Christian walk. In fact, verse 1 through verse 12 is really a summary of the Christian walk. That's why I wanted to include it with our review of chapter 3. But it, does, it doesn't apply a static thing, it implies growth. 2 Peter 3.18, 
where we're instructed to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus. If you could measure your, your walk right now, 12 months from now, will you have progressed or will you have retrograded? Or will you be the same? If you've been a Christian 10 years, is that one, one year's experience repeated 10 times? Or have you really grown? That's the question. You, this implies growth here. To walk. Okay, that's what we're talking about here. For ye know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. Commandments here. See, in regard to their walk, we will find Paul giving some commandments to the Thessalonians. We're not talking about the Ten Commandments here. That may surprise you. That's a presumption. Be careful of presumptions. See, the Lord Jesus also gave commandments. Some of these commandments are new commandments we learn in the, new, in the Gospels. The standard for the Christian conduct, which they set, is on a much larger plane than the Ten Commandments. Well, I live by the Ten Commandments. I don't believe it. You can't. I can't. It's impossible. And yet, that standard ain't high enough for the Christian. Wow, what does that mean? In chapter 5, we're going to discover 22 commandments for the believers. Not 10. No, 22. We'll get to that when we get to chapter 5. The Ten Commandments have no part in the sinner's salvation, nor are they the standard for Christian conduct. The Ten Commandments don't save you. You can't keep them in the first place. They're there to show you that you need a Savior. And they're not the standard that we live by. We have a higher standard, unfortunately. <laughs> or fortunately, however you want to look at it. The Ten Commandments were not given to save us. They were given to show us that we are sinners and that we need a Savior. That's what they're for. They're there to show that we, don't make, we can't make the mark. Now, a question obviously arises here. If a man could not keep the Ten Commandments, how can he keep higher commandments? Wow, good question. The Bible makes it very clear that man was not able to keep the Ten Commandments. Peter mentions that in Acts 15. And putting on the, on the Gentile, putting a yoke on that we could not bear. The nation Israel transgressed these commandments, and the Bible is full of those, but they're summarized by Peter in Acts 15. Paul has some commandments for believers. We should be disciplined. We should be in obedience to Christ. It should be a love relationship. We should be motivated by love. The Lord Jesus said, if ye love me, keep my commandments. His commandments. Now, if we can't keep the Ten Commandments, how are we to keep any higher commandments of Christian conduct? Man can't do it by himself. What's the answer? They can only be attained, they can be attained only by the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells within the believer. The Holy Spirit has empowered you, but you have to listen to Him. And that's not a once-in-a-lifetime decision, that's a moment-by-moment -moment commitment. Take every thought captive, the Scripture tells us. You have resident, if you're a Christian, you have resident within you the power to overcome sin. You won't do it all the time, you'll stumble, don't misunderstand me. But you can overcome any addiction. You can overcome, because the Holy Spirit can do it. You can't do it any other way. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. Wow. Sanctification. That's a widely misunderstood word. Because it's used in different ways. It literally just means to be set apart for God. In that sense, every one of you in Christ is sanctified. You are set apart for God. Is he through with you? Not yet. In the New Testament, every believer is holy, set apart for God. Sanctification, hagiomos, is the process. Holiness is the final estate. Sanctification is getting to holiness. Are you holy yet? No, you're seen as holy because the Father chooses. He, when he sees you, he sees the Son. But are you holy? Not yet. 
There's a process afoot. Okay, sanctification. Three distinct aspects. The first one is positional sanctification. That means we are accepted in the beloved. God accepts us because we're in Christ. And we'll never be more saved than at the moment we put our trust in Christ. If you put your trust in Christ, you'll never be more saved than you are right now. Wow, that's a strange thought, isn't it? This positional sanctification is also called justification. We're justified. That means our debt has been paid. There's no more liability on our part. It's been paid by Jesus Christ, His shed blood. There's a second use of that term, practical sanctification. That's the Holy Spirit working in our life to produce a holiness in our walk. This is a work in progress and will never be perfect so long as we are in these bodies with our old sinful flesh. You can't cast out, can't cast out the flesh. It's there. And then there's a final total sanctification which will occur in the future when we are conformed to the image of Christ Jesus and is this is referred to as glorification more formally. If you look at the word salvation as a, as a verb with three tenses, in the Institute we try to discourage the use of the word salvation because it's ambiguous. You know, I was saved in a burning fire last year or something. We're not talking about that. We're talking about soteriological or theological salvation. In the past tense, it means separation from the penalty of sin. That's a done deal. It was, done on, it was nailed to a cross in Judea some 2,000 years ago. The present tense of sanctification is separation from the power of sin. That's an ongoing battle that you and I are indulged in day by day, year by year. The future tense of salvation is separation from the very presence of sin, devoutly to be wished. Now this first one, the past tense, is called justification. The present tense, which is an ongoing work in progress, is called sanctification. The future tense, which occurs at the rapture and following, is glorification. All three of these terms are terms of salvation, past, present, and future. We found that this paradigm really will raise the fog on a lot of misunderstandings and confusion in this area. So I encourage you to master that. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 1 Thessalonians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, please visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Music